This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fur Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Fur Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer. Got another great guest again today. He's an attorney. He owns a mobile home park. But today, we're going to mostly talk about his other career. He's the CEO of Performance Equity Partners, PEP, and they are a mobile home lender they also make commercial loans on parks as well but please help me welcome my guest scott mcneil scott thanks for coming on man hi Ferd. thanks a lot for having me on yeah well it's good to have another attorney on here another park <laughs> owner and i know we've spoken several times and our company's financed a number of homes with your guys team so appreciate doing business together and great to finally get you to come on the show and uh, look forward to hearing more so maybe for the rest of the crew that doesn't know you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into this space and maybe a little more about pep as well yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So the company started in 2007. And interestingly enough, we were offering the same product line at a bank in the Chicago area. And the bank got sold. And the acquiring institution was not interested in continuing working in the manufactured housing space. So five of the officers and shareholders of the bank got together and purchased the loan portfolio that was secured by manufactured homes and they started the company then and it's really just taken off as well as the industry and uh, we started in about three states and now we're currently in 16 different states mostly from minnesota down to texas east to ohio and west to utah so and everything in between so we've got great presence in the midwest and we started with two different product lines here at PEP. And the second product line had done very well for us, but we've actually uh, wound that down last year and we're going 100% into manufactured housing just because it's grown so much and there's been so much demand for this. So we're really pleased with where we started and where we've ended up so far. And we look forward to pushing into new states as the business takes us there. Yeah, great. No, I know that it was a, a little bit of a hurdle to get into Missouri because you guys were like all around us. And then like, how do we get these guys here? And I know <coughs> more recently yeah. you're, you're there. So is it, does, that, does that regulatory environment uh, slow down some of your growth into other states? It does. And that's really interesting because Missouri was one of these odd states where there was a requirement for a brick and mortar office. And we do everything out of our office in Tinley Park, Illinois, which is in the Chicago suburbs. So we had deliberately gone around Missouri. Right. And <laughs> <I noticed>. uh, <laughs> yeah, right. And we had a lot of demand and a lot of our park owners in Illinois had parks in Missouri and Indiana, the same thing. So uh, we went back and researched the law again, and we found out that the laws had changed a couple of years back. So then we were able to move forward with getting in there. Um, the brick and mortar office requirement is something we just haven't been willing to place personnel offsite. We're a small company. We've got 16 employees, so it didn't really fit with the business model since we can do everything from one location in Tinley Park, but we're really glad to get into Missouri. 
And there's been a lot of demand there and uh, the park owners have been really happy with that decision as well. Yeah, that's great. Now you guys, distinct from some of the other mobile home financiers, you guys will generally only finance a manufactured home that's in a land lease community. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's all we do. Chattel, just the house has to be on a rented pad. Exactly. So maybe tell us about your standard loan and maybe, maybe some of the the restrictions as far as are there any restrictions on age or loan to value, you know, credit, is there a credit score restriction or is it more based on debt to income? Just so we, just so our audience can get a better feel for if PEP is the right fit for their community. Yeah, great question. And that's where we really shine. We have the most flexible loan terms in the program. Our program is a recourse program. So we do require the backstop of the community owner. And that's the first step. If somebody calls me up, we talk about their background and experience, how many pads they have under management currently. And if that all looks like a good fit, then we'll get them signed up. We'll get an agreement in place. And uh, then they get assigned over to a loan officer here. And then we can start receiving applications. So our loan terms are very flexible. So for example, we don't care about the age of the unit as long as it's move-in condition. So we'll do pre-HUD homes. That's not a problem. We don't see a lot these days, but there's still a few out there. And we will finance those, no problem. And we actually don't even have an appraisal requirement. So new home, used home, the park owner can price it however they like. As long as the borrower can afford to repay the loan as we underwrite it, then they can price it however they see fit. Um, down payments, we have about the lowest down payment out there in the industry that I'm aware of, which is a minimum of 3% down. And we can even do 0% down in some situations if somebody has been renting and been a tenant in the park for the prior 12 months with a good payment history. So we can elect to accept that payment history in lieu of a down payment. And that's really popular with community owners. They can go to people that are on LTO contracts, RTOs, and say, you've been renting this home for 24 months. You pay on time. How would you like to own this home with no money down, no money out of pocket? We can roll in those closing costs. And uh, that's pretty low-hanging fruit for an operator that wants to get rid of that home inventory once and for all and uh, use our program to finance those buyers. You know, that's that's one of your your guys' features that is unique. And it's the one that I, I fight with my managers on. They're like, hey, we can, we can sell these guys this through PEP with zero down. I'm like, yeah, but I'm sitting here like I'm backstopping the loan. I don't really think I want somebody who has <laughs> zero down in the home. So, I mean, sure. at a, in most states, you can charge a, a double security deposit. So we do that on our rentals. We'll charge a double security deposit. So I'm like, look, I'll give you 100% of your deposit back. But, I'm not, you know, that's going to be your down payment. I'm not going to... Sure let you finance it at zero down and give you $2,000 cash. You know, so um, personal, personal preference there. But one thing I do, I was in uh, Northeastern Iowa over the weekend looking at some communities and they were, I, I had not been in this home and we had just had it under contract with you guys. And it was like 20,000 for a 75. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, you know, 21st mortgage, for example, would not even touch that thing. And I was like, how do you get a consumer to pay this? You know, normally we sell those for pennies almost. Well, I went inside. Right. It was marvelous. 
I was like, it was a cool model. It had the raised ceiling. It had the built-in stereos that still worked. It was nice new flooring, new paint. I'm like, okay, well, I can see why the consumer thinks that this is a good deal. All in with the lot run, it was like 700 bucks a month. Um, and I was like, how did, how did we get this finance? Like, oh yeah, no, no appraisal requirement. Because on, on paper, it wouldn't appraise. Right? I tell right. people like, you know, what's a 1967 car worth? $400 and scrap if it's still around. But what if it's a 1967 Shelby Mustang in mint condition? Well, it's worth a lot of money, right? Sure. So, you know, if, if I was to offer you to sell you the car, you'd want to know which of the two it was. So obviously the consumer, our customer, looked at the home, vetted it. So this is kind of like the 67 Mustang. It's a nice model and it's a nice condition. So they will pay it. And it was really nice that you guys were able to help us get that financed instead of us having to do some sort of RTO or lease and and, and we had a decent amount of cash in it. We had, we certainly had more than five or $8,000 in it, renovating it. Plus, you know, the purchase price, which was generally de minimus because those kind of homes you often get back in an in lieu of an eviction or things of that sort. But it, it, it just was a testimony to your guys' flexibility of let, let the market um, impact the price and let the market dictate whether somebody wants to buy this. Obviously, you and I both are motivated to only put people in there who can afford the payments. So what are the restrictions on payments? Is it, I remember with Dodd-Frank Safe, Safe Act, I think it was 38% was the um, debt to housing ratio and 43% is the debt to yep. income ratio. Is that, is that the guy Correct. that you guys do something else? Correct. We use one overall ratio. We use the bottom side ratio, 43%. That's Dodd-Frank. Those are the requirements for a qualified mortgage, which is what we originate. And obviously we like to see something below that. And I would say in the majority of the cases, uh, we're nowhere near a 43% DTI and our underwriters are cognizant that most of our business is going to be well below that. But it all comes down to job stability and the ability to repay. So um, some of the challenges we've seen recently from the pandemic are a lot of people took time off for one reason or another. So they've got a job gap. And while job gaps are permissible under the QM mortgage rules, uh, there are limitations. So extended job gaps are a uh, stumbling block when it comes to underwriting, but all of our underwriters try to be as flexible as they can because at the end of the day, we're here to make loans and get approvals so park owners can sell their inventory and so we can thrive as a finance company. So we do our best to underwrite. And one area that we're very flexible in is there's actually no regulatory requirements for a minimum credit score. So we don't even look at credit scores now. While we do pull a credit report on every single applicant, instead of looking at a score, which really just summarizes all the accounts into a three-digit number, We'll look at every account individually, see if it's being paid on time. If it wasn't being paid, let's get a letter of explanation. Let's understand why. And to see if that was a one-time event in the past and the applicant has since reestablished good credit. And that's really what we try to weigh more heavily. Things happen in life, right, Ferd? So People go to the hospital, they have medical issues, they right. get laid off, we go through recessions. That's life, sometimes even a bankruptcy. But 
What's more important, how did they handle themselves? How'd they get through that issue? Have they reestablished themselves financially? And that's really what we focus on when we're underwriting an applicant. So two things really, job stability with income and then credit history that is recently established and how have they been paying in the recent past. I think that's I think that's great that you guys can do that because some companies won't do that, but it's you know, like if somebody had a major medical issue three, four years ago and missed every bill, like their credit score stinks, but that's a one-off event. And if they've right. been making, you know, good behavior. So, I mean, I always tell people, you know, we look at criminal credit eviction um, and income, but, you know, I tell people if you're a sex offender and your credit score is 800 and you got, you make 6,000 a month, it's not going to work. Right. <laughs> but if your credit score is 800 and you have no job, it's not going to work. Right. You need to have the it's, right. it's, it's a it's the totality of the four. If you got arrested for drugs 20 years ago, OK, we can give you a new lease on life, but you got to have the income and you got to and Mike and our company, you got to have the down payment. We don't we are not doing zero percent finance, um, but it is that it is an, an, a mix of the four. It's not just robotic because, oh, you got a five ninety nine credit score. You're a bad person. Six hundred. You're a good person. Right. Um, jobs say a lot of things. So I know that the, the covid gap. And that's cost us quite a few um, buyers as well. Do you, is there more? Is there a more firm timeline as what's an acceptable, you know, gap in employment? Because we've got a number of people that are like, yeah, I didn't, you know, they use the excuse I didn't work COVID. It's like, well, why not? And we know right. the answer why not. It's because they were getting freebies from the government. Yeah. And it's like everybody in there. You can walk down the street, you see ten retailers hiring. You just didn't want that job. But now, yeah. now that you have that job, you can't get a loan. Because you you chose to sit on the bench for a year and a half, when you're you know able bodied, um, so is it a six month gap to success acceptable or is there any wiggle room or like hey they were off for seven months but they actually had COVID maybe they were in a hospital for a month sure. you know, or, or is it, what is how does that how do you guys look at that? Yeah, it's generally six months. Um, we try to be flexible where we can, and I'm sure we've made some exceptions to that. Um, but generally six months. And like you said, I think it's more the sentiment and the intent of the applicant. Did they just take two years off or were they actually trying? And for some reason they had job gaps, things like that. So we look at every situation differently. We have to apply the rules universally and across the board. Um, but if there is any gray area where we can be flexible, we will try to do so. Got it. What are you guys seeing what, with the recent interest rates? Where, where are your rates coming in? I know they've, everybody across the board, they're going up. And how, how's that impacting your ability to finance loans? I and mean, obviously on the, on the park side, it's harder to make a deal pencil because um, mm -hmm. you're borrowing a big number for a long time. But on, on some of the consumer loans, I know some consumers are like, yeah, whatever, it's 12%. Some people are like, wow, it's only 10%. Or I'm sitting here like 10%, good grief, right? Um, but they have a different credit history and that I'm used to. I've never, you know, never had a 10% loan. So if I see one, it makes me get heartburn. Some of these loans are itching in the 11s and 12s and, and perhaps beyond at this point. Sure, great question. It's a really interesting time in terms of interest rates. This is something... A lot of us haven't seen in their lifetimes before. 
So we're just riding it along as it all unfolds here and continues to unfold. So it's really a fascinating time. So we price all, all of our loans off of an interest rate index that gets published weekly. Everybody gets the same rate, regardless of credit, DTI, anything like that. Um, there is a small adjustment for an amount over 50,000 or under 50,000. But generally our rates right now are somewhere between 12 and mid 13%. And interestingly enough, we have not seen a slowdown in home buying due to the interest rates going up. And we just wrapped up the month of February, 2023, which turned out to be one of our best months ever here at the company, especially for a February, it's a shorter month. It's a cold month in most states. And, uh, Community owners are selling homes, we're financing homes, people are buying homes. So there hasn't really been any impact in terms of uh, buyer traffic. Now we'll see at some point the market's gotta give and there's gotta be some level at which the, the uh, velocity slows down here a little bit, but we have not seen it yet. One thing that's interesting that we are seeing is certain rate, uh, certain states have an interest rate cap. And for the first time ever, we're butting up against those interest rate ceilings. So that's a problem we haven't seen before. And we're kind of uh, managing around that right now. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, what about other requirements? I know, you know, some financiers really push hard on having your dealer license, some of them less so. What is your guys' status on, you know, do I need my dealer's license and or any other sort of paperwork to get on board with you guys? Sure. The dealer license specifically is not something we've had a hard requirement for in the past. We highly recommend that community owners follow their state law and do whatever is required by state. Um, it's not something we have required in the past from uh, underwriting up front to get a community owner into the program. We are finding there are some states where if they're not licensed, there's an issue transferring title later on. I believe Indiana was one example of that. And uh, we've had a few issues in Illinois as well. So generally it's a good idea. Community owners should research the laws and do whatever they need to there. Um, do we check for it? Generally not, but uh, always a good idea, especially if you're going to be selling a high volume, high number of homes. Yeah, most states do require dealer's license if you're selling. Some states have an exclusion or exception if you sell one or if you sell three, but but some sure. of those are also limited to individuals. So if you have an LLC, which of course both of us lawyers would recommend you don't own all these homes in your personal name. If you have an LLC, well, then you're a company. Well, then you, you're eliminated from some of these exclusions. And then I know like we buy homes new from the manufacturer. We buy used homes and new, but in particular, if you're going to buy new, typically the manufacturer is going to require you to have the dealer license anyway. So we have our dealer's license so that or several of them depends on the state and the park. And then that allows us to buy the home from the manufacturer and not pay sales tax because we're just a dealer and we get a manufacturer's certificate of origin. And then we don't pay the sales tax. We have an inventory when we sell the home to the consumer then the consumer pays the sales tax. And we, and depending on the state, we have to make state reports 
um, we have to collect sales tax. Um, I think with you guys, it's convenient and some other lenders that you guys will collect the sales tax as part of the process, of putting the lien, the lien on the home. And then we just tell the customer, Hey, it's sales tax is rolled in and, and then it, everything gets titled up with the DMV. Um, mm-hmm. But a little bit of paperwork associated with this kind of stuff, but you guys have been good about adding communities. I know Logan's given you guys several to add this community or add, you know, this, and it's relatively painless. Um, so that's, that's a nice, nice thing. Well, tell me, Scott, about what you guys are doing on park loans, community loans, because that, that's relatively new. I've not worked with you on one of those at this point, but I know you're, you guys, you guys have jumped in that space. So give me, give me a little background on what you guys are doing there. Yeah, we offer commercial lending and we're offering this in all the states that we do business in currently. And we're entertaining purchase transactions, refinance transactions secured by the communities themselves, generally up to 75% loan to value. We can do a 25 year amortization. In some situations, we may be able to go to 30 years and we've been doing this now for about a year. Just closed a transaction a couple of weeks ago. Um, might be a good example. Two partners they have about four communities they own currently, bought four more communities, off-market transaction. Uh, they put just over 35% down on the purchase price. And the interesting thing is during the underwriting process, those four parks would not cash flow on their own with the new debt at the current rent levels. So mm-hmm. as it stood, it wouldn't be able to get approved, not just by us, but almost any other lender I can think of. But the story that the buyer told us was he's going to come in, increase lot rents to a market rate. He's going to start billing back utilities. He's going to do various other things. And uh, based on his projections that we went through and they seemed plausible and realistic, we were able to get that approved and get it done for him. And uh, he's already gone through with his rental increases. In fact, he was down there the day after he bought the park and uh, delivering notices with that. So our lending program on the commercial side, we're generally trying to look at loan amounts, 2 million or above. Okay. And um, now, what about DCR? I mean, if you're, if that loan you just mentioned didn't cover the debt without some pro forma rents and pro forma operations, do you have flexibility then where most banks would need a, like a 1.2 or 1.25 debt coverage ratio? Are you guys doing, are you guys doing that? Or did you, do you do interest only for this lease up period or what, what about that kind of stuff? Yeah. Good question. On this one, we started to amortize right away. And uh, while there was an existing cash flow historically, the borrower put together some pro formas showing his business plan to increase the lot rents. And that got us well over a 1.25 coverage ratio, which is where we generally underwrite to. That would be our minimum. And I think with his projections, we ended up somewhere around a 1.38 times coverage. And uh, all indications are that that he'll meet that in and get the parks to that level in short order. Okay, great. What about um, loan term and prepayment years or penalties? Yeah, generally five-year terms. Uh, prepayment penalties are negotiated up front depending on the owner's plan for the park. 
if they're looking to purchase and stabilize and turn a park around and then refinance it with long-term agency debt, uh, we can work around that and gear the, the prepayment penalty towards that goal and keep that in mind. So it uh, just depends on the transaction. Okay, great. Anything else on the community's lending you want to cover? I think that's about it. You know, our, our big point there is the ability to listen to a story and hear the community owner out in terms of what they're going to do. We understand the park may have been operated by someone who is indifferent or maybe past retirement age that was just living off of it and maybe hadn't raised the rents in 10 years. So we're happy to listen to a story of a new operator that's going to buy it, bring the market, bring the rents up to market rates and uh, implement some of these other things and bring in new and used homes to expand the park. Got it. What are your views on interest rates in today's market? I know it's kind of a crazy uh, scenario we got here, but what do you anticipate for just interest rates in general? And then I know there's been chatter for years about the HUD or uh, one of the other government agencies getting involved in backstopping mobile home residential loans, kind of like collateralized loans and single family residential, which ultimately has pushed rates down and has made it a more liquid market for for buyers, more banks get the space. Do you think there's going to be any any movement on that, or just any, any other anything else you're hearing from a you know legislative either at a federal or local level? Yeah, the interest rate quandary right now is really kind of fascinating, and it's interesting because it affects everybody. So it started with the inflation. It's everything we buy on a daily basis: food, gasoline, etc. Um, even meals we eat out at fast food restaurants that used to be five, six, seven dollars are now over ten dollars. And uh, interest rates going up so dramatically has just been so unprecedented for decades at least. Um, and again, a lot of people that are in their prime right now have never even lived through something like this before. Uh, so it's interesting where it's all going to end up and and we'll have another, kind of benchmark here as early as next week when the Fed meets again. So it'll be really fascinating to see what they're going to do in light of some of the liquidity problems we've seen in the bigger regional banks. Um, but it's a challenge. And at some point, I think it's really, it it is going to have to slow everything down, economically speaking, which is their intent. Um, we just haven't gotten there yet. So it's a question of, how high do the rates have to go for that to happen? And uh, hopefully we're getting close to that level. Um, and then on the HUD side of things, you know, we've got this amazing product here in America, manufactured housing. Nobody else has it in the whole world, really. And uh, you've got 20 plus million Americans that live in this type of housing. So it's really something that should be in the front of um, people's minds, especially in Washington. It's something that you could really do a lot more with, I think. So expanding programs that serve manufactured housing, which is affordable housing, I think is uh, just a fantastic idea. And I'm surprised we haven't done more with it already. 
but uh, there's certainly room for improvement there. And uh, I think the sky's kind of the limit there. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's interesting that, you know, that HUD has this duty to serve that they're supposed to be, you know, financing consumers and helping affordable housing. I know that Fannie and Freddie have done a lot in the land business as far as financing, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, manufactured housing communities, but on the homes, it just really has not been a lot of uh, success the last few years. So it's really, I mean, it's given an opportunity for guys like you and your company to fill that void, but there's only so much you can do and, and without the federal government support and um it, which yeah i agree with you that you know we have a special thing that you can build a you know manufactured home in a factory for 40 to 50 cents on the dollar compared to site built why are we not getting more of that product out there and obviously part of it new development or in regular subdivisions is the nimbyism of local jurisdictions not wanting it but there's still i mean i don't know how many mobile home park lots there are in the country you know supposedly there's 44,000 parks I don't know the number of pad sites but there's got to be tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of vacant sites ready for the next home and if the financing was more favorable to the consumer the financing was more favorable to the park owner you know get rid of the recourse backstop for example you would see much much more affordable housing in these communities so I don't yeah. know if we're ever going to live long enough to see it happen, but you'd sure think if if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen soon. You'd think based on, you know, the, just the market we live in as far as higher rates and the cost of housing, good luck buying a $200,000 house somewhere. It's, nobody's building them. Um, it's like 300,000 starter home, 400,000 starter home. And people, a lot of people can't afford that or don't want to afford that. So, right. it's, you know, more and more apartments, you know, more and more subsidized housing. So uh, it'd be interesting to see for sure. And it's it's pretty obvious when you look at the finance companies that play in the chattel space like ours and of the six or 10 big companies that are out there, everyone does it a little bit differently. So you can see it's very fragmented and there's no uniformity and really only an agency of the government would be able to bring that all together like Fannie and Freddie have done. Um, so that's where the opportunity lies down the road. And will it happen? Like you said, I don't know. Uh, maybe someday, but it's probably something we need. Yeah, for sure. All right, Scott, well, any other tips or tricks or ideas you want to share before we jump? Uh, anybody can feel free to call me. Uh, our website's peplending.com. That's peplending.com. My number's on there. Uh, they can call me direct, 708-253-6010. And happy to discuss their needs as a community owner. And uh, we'd love to get them into the program. All right. Sounds good, Scott. I appreciate it. All right, Ferd. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.